Please take your Bible and turn to James chapter 3. We'll begin by reading James 3, verses 13 to 18. James 3, beginning in verse 8, uh, excuse me, 13. Again, the word of our living God reads, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. The message today is entitled, Two Kinds of Wisdom. Two Kinds of Wisdom. Historically, wisdom has been the highest and noblest and most valuable possession one could ever obtain. The ancient Roman philosopher said, one ancient Roman philosopher said that wisdom is, quote, the best gift of the gods and, quote, the mother of all good things. In Greek thought, wisdom was synonymous with human reason through ideas that could be set forth, discussed, or debated. But those sophists, they were called, had no interest in divine things, no interest in truth, no interest in establishing objective truth and justice. They were simply concerned with winning an argument and stunning people with their polished eloquence and passionate rhetoric. But the biblical concept of wisdom is theocentric or God-centered, not anthropocentric. Or man-centered. To the Hebrews, wisdom didn't necessarily imply brilliance or scholastic training or speaking ability. Rather, if one was considered wise, it implied that he had the ability and the skill to apply the religious truth one knew. That's a broad definition of wisdom in a biblical sense. And in keeping with that Hebraic thought, not Roman or Greek thought, James admonished his Jewish brothers and sisters scattered among Palestine with regard to religious wisdom. He begins this new section in James, in his letter, by asking a poignant question in verse 13. Look at it again. He asks, who among you is wise and understanding? He's saying, who is skilled in the art of right living? Emphasis on right. Or, to put another way, James is asking, who is careful about applying the knowledge of God to your personal living? Now, the question implies the answer, not everyone. Right? Not everyone's wise. Not everyone is full of understanding, or else James wouldn't have had the necessity to clarify what true wisdom is, right? So the same question that applied to James's readers applies to us right now. Who among you is wise? Well, if you think so, let's keep reading. And he assumes that some would probably pridefully... Raise their hand and say, oh yeah, I'm a wise man. 
But James says something for that person who claims to be the wise and understanding man. Look at the next sentence. Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. That's the test of true wisdom. If you profess to be wise, if you think yourself to be wise, you better prove it. You have to prove it by your exemplary lifestyle, by the activities you're involved in, and by demonstrating power under control. That's gentleness. And after having put forth that test of wisdom, he goes on to give a fairly descriptive and detailed explanation of two polarizing kinds of wisdom that we know of. Simply put, it's ungodly wisdom and godly wisdom. That's the outline for today. Simple. Today we're going to learn about ungodly wisdom and godly wisdom. And by learning what they are, you can tell what kind of wisdom you have, what kind of wisdom you align yourself with, and what kind of wisdom you should seek to gain. First, let's understand from the Word of God what ungodly wisdom is in verses 14 to 16. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant. And so lie against the truth. In other words, don't kid yourself. If there is any bitter jealousy or selfish ambition in your heart, you cannot lie and say that you are wise. That kind of person is not wise in God's eyes. He goes on to say, if you have the motive of bitter jealousy, which is what he's intending to say, if you have that motive in your heart, which you are is wise in the world's eyes. James says it's wisdom that is not that which comes down from above. In other words, it doesn't come from God. It doesn't come from the Spirit. It doesn't come from the truth. It comes from down below. What kind of wisdom is this? He gives five qualities of ungodly wisdom. Five qualities of ungodly wisdom. The first is earthly. Earthly. Whenever you come across this word earthly in the Bible, and the context tells you that it's obvious not referring to a physical land, it always has the connotation of severe moral contrast between heaven and earth. Heavenly things are that which pertain to truth, justice, and righteousness. Earthly or worldly things are that which pertain to false, corrupt, and wrong. We are commanded in Colossians 3, verse 2, to set our mind on the things above, not on the things of this earth. And while those who set their minds on earthly things are headed for destruction, Philippians 3, verse 19. So these earthly things, what are these earthly things? Well, simply, they could include philosophy, politics, education, economics, or any other related field with a godless undertaking. The one who professes Christ and is earthly-minded is not wise. I think that's a pretty relevant discussion right now, isn't it? With the current political scheme we're witnessing unfold. We are not to be preoccupied. We are not to be thinking mostly about the presidential election. The next quality of ungodly wisdom is natural. First, earthly or worldly, and then natural. Other translations say unspiritual, and that's very appropriate. If godly wisdom comes from above, then obviously the natural man cannot possess it. But not only can the natural man not possess it, he couldn't if he tried. 
Why? We just sang it. And, and, and can it be? Long my spirit imprisoned. I mean, that, that hymn has so much rich theology. I could just stand up here and exposit that hymn. And it would be very edifying. That's a doctrine of man. Naturally, we're imprisoned, right? We're imprisoned. We cannot discern spiritual truth because we're natural. Paul says that natural man thinks that supernatural things are stupid. Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14, But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. They think the things of God are stupid. How many of you have experienced that? Somebody laugh at you because you believe the Bible. Somebody say vile things to you because you said that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. Expect it. Because they think it's stupid. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually good. Spiritually able to get it? No. Appraised. Spiritually appraised. They're, they have no life. No spiritual life. So, the one who thinks the things of God are stupid and refuses to see the need to continually gain wisdom from God's word is seeking natural wisdom. False and fleshly wisdom. So don't be fooled. Don't be fooled, especially young people. Listen to me, young people. I'm so happy you guys are here. I, 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 want, I, I have a passion for this. Because my fear is that what I've seen so much... Even when I taught at Christian school, some teachers don't look at the kids in the face and say, this is why it's important. You need to understand the word of God and understand why we believe it before you go out to the secular world. The PhDs that you're going to meet later in life from Ivy League schools who have a large library and books that they've written and a diverse following, a brilliant mind and a knack for giving moving lectures... If they, is, if they are 100% natural, they're fools. They're fools. Because his wisdom is natural. Unspiritual. So don't be intimidated and don't be fooled. With men and women with gray hair and educations and books and all those things and titles... They have no wisdom. They're only conduits for fact-giving. That's it. Sometimes false facts. Thirdly, ungodly wisdom is demonic. Demonic. You know, one of my favorite preachers, John Piper. You guys ever heard of John Piper? Anybody? He, He said in one of his sermons... That he doesn't feel like he's encountering God unless he's being shocked. Now, when you read this, it's sort of shocking. The fact that the kind old man next door who works for Microsoft probably has millions of dollars, whatever, if he is not a Christian, the wisdom that he tries to impart to you is demonic. I'm not making this up. Wisdom from below is demonic. In the sense that ungodly wisdom has its root in Satan himself. From the beginning, Satan promised wisdom to Eve. He told her, Genesis 3, For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. She took from its fruit and ate. 
And the result of that one bite from one single piece of fruit plummeted the whole human race into death and sin and condemnation. For what? For what? All so that she could get wisdom. Eve wanted wisdom from Satan. So she bought the lie that she could be her own God. And that way of thinking has permeated man's thinking ever since, hasn't it? Men in their, men in their depraved arrogance deny God's truth, the gospel, and even his existence. And self-deceivingly think that they are the masters of their own fate and the captain of their destiny, or the captain of their soul. But that thinking is demonic. Verse 16, James reiterates the two motives that he already addressed in verse 13. The two motives behind false wisdom are what? Jealousy and selfish ambition. He goes on to say, there is a disorder and every evil thing. So to wrap up this section on ungodly wisdom, James is saying here that if you possess it, seek it, or espouse it, it will result in vile confusion. That's what he's saying here in verse 16. The idea is that absolutely nothing of ultimate good results from human wisdom. This ungodly wisdom is characterized by the world, the flesh, and the devil. That's, that's ungodly wisdom. In each of these ways... They are fruits of wisdom from below. Now, we, next in this, in this uh, section, we have the direct antithesis of ungodly wisdom, and that is godly wisdom, verses 17 and 18. Here, James is a little bit more descriptive, okay? So we're going to spend a little bit more time talking about this type of wisdom. There are eight qualities. Eight qualities of godly wisdom. And before we tackle those, uh, let's get on the same page about wisdom here. James says in verse 17, the wisdom from above. Wisdom from above. That is wisdom. That is wisdom again, broadly defined, is rightly applying knowledge. But we just don't rightly apply natural knowledge, right? We rightly apply wisdom from God. We apply knowledge that is the wisdom from God. The wisdom from God is chiefly revealed in the written prophetic word. Nowhere else do we find this, this godly wisdom. You cannot be a wise person if you are not a Bible student. Wisdom cannot be gleaned or learned if you do not have a steady intake Steady diet of Bible study. And I'm not just talking about short devotions in the morning. I'm talking about really studying it. Really knowing it. And remembering it. Because that is when you're going to apply it. Through that way. So, the Bible says that godly wisdom begins with something very important. What is it? Having to fear the Lord. Having to fear the Lord. Proverbs 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So there is no, if there is no reverential awe of God in your heart, there is no wisdom to be found. It begins with fearing God. And you can't fear God unless you know Him, and you can't know Him until you have trusted in Him. And if you've trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, as we just sung, if you, if you know and you understand that you are clothed in his righteousness divine, then this text is for you. Having wisdom from above signifies you have the ability to practically apply what you know about God to everyday life. And the first quality of that, that uh, type of wisdom is purity. 
Wisdom from above is first pure, James says. The word here that James uses is akin to the word holy, meaning freedom from defilement or impurities. So if you want to be a wise person, be separate from sin. Paul uses it in 1 Timothy 5. Keep yourself free from sin. It's the same language. To be pure is to keep oneself free from sin, to be innocent, blameless, modest. And notice it's first. James puts the word first. What does that tell us? It's a necessary quality of godly wisdom. It starts with purity. It starts with being separate, free from sin. Because this idea of holiness or purity is really interwoven into the rest of these qualities that only a true believer can possess. An unbeliever is not holy because he is still in his sin and therefore has no desire or capacity to be truly peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy, good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. It first starts with purity. And the one who's been washed and renewed by the power of the Holy Spirit will have godly wisdom that's first pure. Then, James says, peaceable. To be peaceable is just having a harmonious attitude and loving relationships with other believers that are the outcome of, listen, having peace with God. Having peace with God. The peace we have among each other is on the foundation of having peace with God through Jesus Christ. We must understand that peace begins with God. And when a person is at true peace with God through Christ, he can have genuine, lasting peace with everyone else. Psalm 119, verse 165. Those who love your law have great peace. Those who love your law have great peace. So as believers... We should make every effort to be peaceable because we are now at peace with God. Romans 12:18 says, "If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Be at peace with all men." That verse is convicting, isn't it? Have you ever have you ever gotten an argument with somebody or a fight with somebody or you knew that you offended somebody and and it's just kind of like eating you up inside? And, 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 you, and you, you hate not being at peace with your brother or sister? If you have, that's a good sign that you have the Holy Spirit. Because Paul says, as long as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. On the other hand, it's important to make this distinction. Because I think, I think this, what I'm about to say is, is, is not said much. So let me warn you. Being peaceable and being at peace with all men does not mean we will have total outward peace with the world. Does that make sense? In fact, if we're going to be biblical, we have to remember that to be a biblical Christian is to expect controversy and hate. Because the biblical gospel is a great dividing line. Listen to the words of Jesus. The same Jesus who said John 3.16, okay? Jesus himself said in Matthew 10, Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. Wow. Talk about being shocked. I, I, I read that. I'm shocked, aren't you? Jesus, the great lover of men, the prince of peace, said that he came to bring a sword to the earth. So it must be balanced, brothers and sisters. It's got to be balanced. We must fully embrace the truth that conversion to Christ can result in strained family relationships. And you've got to embrace it. 
I'm going home to see my dad and my uncle and my aunts for the first time in four years next week. And guess what? I'm the only Christian in my family. It's going to be hard. But my Lord said, I came to bring a sword, buddy. They're not going to like you if you stand for purity. They're not going to like you. They're not going to hang out with you. If you want to be holy. So embrace that. We live to be pleasing to our master. We also need to be ready to, to, to embrace persecution or even martyrdom. And the point here is this. Don't confuse your external peace with your unsaved co-workers, friends, neighbors, and relatives with godly wisdom. Just because you think everybody likes you all the time does not mean you're a faithful believer. It's quite possible that they like you because you're like them and not Jesus. Because remember, the only perfect man that ever lived was hated. Did you ever think about that before? The only perfect man that ever walked the face of the planet was hated, hunted, and killed, betrayed, and abandoned. So who are we to think that that shouldn't happen to us? R.C. Sproul said that Jesus' life was a storm of controversy. The apostles, like the prophets before them, could hardly go a day without controversy. Paul said that he debated daily in the marketplace. To avoid controversy is to avoid Christ. We can have peace, but it is a servile and carnal peace where the truth is slain in the streets. So, Godly wisdom is peaceable. We have peace with each other because we have peace with God. As long as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. But don't be confused and don't be misled to think that peace with everybody you know is indicative of godliness. Thirdly, the third quality of godly wisdom is gentleness. Paul says, or excuse me, James says gentle. And now before I explain what gentleness is, I I want to just review briefly what gentleness is not. I'm not going to go deep into it this time, but before in other expositions I've taught, I've, I've gone deeper into what gentleness is not. I feel like there's a lot of misunderstanding and misconceptions when it comes to gentleness. So let me just briefly, I want to be very, very, very clear and say that gentleness does not mean we have to be timid. Passive, cowardly, ashamed, or weak. Don't make, don't make gentleness synonymous with, that, with those things. Biblical gentleness is this. It's that inward grace of the soul that's patiently submissive in every offense, listen up, while being free from the desire of revenge or retribution, First and chiefly towards God. It can also be defined this way, as one scholar puts it. The quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. Another says that gentleness is the middle standing between two extremes. Getting angry without reason and not getting angry at all. So gentleness does not mean having a soft, slow, indirect, happy-go-lucky disposition. It's the spirit-enabled temper in which we accept what happens to us with submission because we know who God is and what happens, it's his will. This is important because probably in the world, even in the church, people associate gentleness with a soft voice. Or the ability and willingness to always kind of sit in the sidelines. But 
but godly gentleness, spirit-induced gentleness, is more about the inward grace of the soul that's willing to receive mistreatment without retaliation. Jesus was the epitome of this gentleness, wasn't he? Think about Jesus. Not only was he patient and kind to those who were closest to him, but he prayed for the people who ruthlessly slaughtered him. Remember at the cross, as he was being executed, what did he say? He said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they do. That's gentleness. He didn't retaliate. He didn't curse them. He prayed for him. So it's also important to realize that gentleness is not limited to action, but it includes our thinking. You know, because we could put on a smile, give a firm handshake, but walk away with violent and evil thoughts in our, in our mind. So we can't be fooled. That, that is not gentleness either. We must remember that God is omniscient, which means he knows our thoughts, and he knows all of them. Fourthly, reasonable. Godly wisdom is reasonable. In the Greek, it's a compound word from you, patho. You guys heard of pathos? It comes from the Greek word patho. It means to persuade. And here, the word that James uses means to persuade well. Or the literal rendering would be easily persuaded. Now, what James is saying, he's not saying that we need to have a weak, childish gullibility. And having the false humility of, well, I could be wrong about everything, you know. This, this is a willing deference to others when weighty theological or moral principles are not involved. Okay, let me, let me repeat that. Reasonable means having a willing def- deference to others when weighty theological issues or moral principles are not involved. Okay, so case in point, study wants to argue about the doctrine of election. I'm not going to sit down and defer to someone else just because, just because. That, that's not what James is saying. So somebody who says, comes along and says, we, we need to rethink our view of marriage, because, you know, that's the trend right going on right now. I'm, I'm not going to sit down and be easily persuaded about anything like that, and I hope you're not either. James is saying that we need to be willing to defer to people, to others, when there are not weighty theological moral principles involved. So perhaps in some sense, godly wisdom is being willing to hear a different idea or opposing perspective on something that's tertiary. Tertiary, like a third level. Like a third level issue. So, so don't be easily persuaded about things like the gospel. Don't be easily persuaded about the fundamentals of the faith. Don't be easily persuaded about objective morals and laws that the Bible clearly reveals. He's saying we need to be willing to be persuaded by people who know more than us when it comes to matters of Christian liberty. For example, you might hear someone say, you go to the doctor's office. For those of you who know me, I've gone to a lot, a lot of doctor's visits the past year. And if you've ever gone through something, some serious health issues, you get bounced around from different doctors, right? Why? Why do you go from the, the surgeon to the oncologist to the primary care doc to a cardiologist to a, a whatever? I don't know all the ologists. But they, 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 they refer you to someone else because, what do they say? They say, I want to refer you to someone who has expertise in that area. Right? So it's the same, same idea here when it comes to godly wisdom. Be willing to defer to somebody who may know more than you or have a better idea or giftedness with regard to something not fundamental. So the balance here is extremely important. You mustn't walk away with thinking that a wise person is bound to the flippant ideas of everyone. A wise person knows when to take a step back and defer to someone who knows more in a certain area. The fifth 
quality of godly wisdom is to be full of mercy. Full of mercy. It's in contrast to grace. Every time you, you, you typically think of mercy and grace, they go together. In contrast to grace, which is God's free, unmerited favor in Christ, mercy is the alleviation of the consequences of sin. Now, this is important. Some, I think a lot of people don't understand the difference between grace and mercy, okay? It's, under, it's important to understand this. In grace, we receive something we don't deserve. That's our salvation. In mercy, something we do deserve, which is God's wrath, is withheld from us. Some it's held back eternally. Some only temporarily. Okay, so that, that's the theocentric or biblical definition of mercy. God withheld his wrath from us, and so since that is so since that God is merciful and his spirit lives in us, then we naturally should be merciful. But to put another way, just as he acted mercifully towards us in our unbelief. We then should act merciful to others. The idea of mercy can also be understood as compassion. And it could also be translated that way, compassion, to be full of compassion. Other than seeing the mercy of God in Christ, the clearest illustration of mercy or compassion is found in the story of the Good Samaritan. Sort of good Samaritan. For a second time, I'm not going to turn there, but you, you know the story that, that um, this priest and this Levite walked past this guy who was beaten and left for dead. But a Samaritan comes by, and in Luke 10, verse 33, it says that he came upon him, and he saw him, and he felt compassion. He felt compassion. It's the same idea here. That deep-seated compassion. And so we see from, from that story of the Good Samaritan that mercy is a mark of true Christianity. One who is truly wise is full of mercy. That is, he is compassionate. He is not callous. He has compassion for all. The sixth fruit of... Excuse me. The sixth quality of godly wisdom is good fruits. Good fruits. It could also be translated as deeds or works. You know, uh, a genuine believer produces good fruit. That that is a it is a constant theme throughout Scripture. Matthew seven comes into mind, right? Matthew seven, when Jesus said that um, you know them by their fruits, and of course Galatians five, the fruits of the spirit, and then James majors on this theme as well in chapter two by revealing that good works vindicate a person's profession of faith. So. Godly wisdom includes good fruits, or good deeds, or good works. The seventh is unwavering. This is an important one. If, you're losing, if I'm losing you, check back in, because I want you to get this one. Not, this, is the, this one isn't so common. Other translations say impartial or without favoritism, but here it's not the same word that James uses in chapter 2, verses 1 and 8. It's not partiality. It's not favoritism. The literal way to say it is without separation or distinction or simply undivided. Godly wisdom is undivided. Undivided with regard to what? Well, here, it's implied. James is talking about being undivided in your loyalty to God. That interpretation also fits with the context of the letter. In uh, James 4, verse 8, as we'll see in a few weeks from now, James calls for the double-minded to purify their hearts. Has the idea of Jesus saying, you cannot serve two masters. But the truth is that being undivided in our loyalty to Christ has always been a battle in the heart of a believer. Wouldn't you say so? It's so hard to keep Christ at the center of our life, and it's so easy for our priorities to shift to temporal and menial things. Which is why Jesus, again, 
There's so much ignorance about the biblical Jesus. Listen to what he says in Matthew 10. He who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. If you understand that, that's shocking. So we we all need to ask ourselves and do a heart assessment and think, do I love someone or something more than Jesus? How could you tell? Well, you ask yourself, how do you spend your time? What do you study? What do you listen to? What do you surround yourself with? Or who do you surround yourself with? What are you working for? What's your goal in life? If the answers to those questions don't have Jesus first, then you're divided. And James is saying that the divided Christian has no godly wisdom. There's much more I could say about that for the sake of time. I have to move on. The last one is important as well. They're all important. But this one particularly has some very relevant application to it. Without hypocrisy. The final quality of godly wisdom is without hypocrisy. No hypocrisy. The Greek word translated hypocrisy came to represent somebody who was impersonating someone as an actor. It implied the one who could act a part or pretend to be what they're not. In a literal sense, James is saying somebody with godly, with godly wisdom is someone who isn't acting or playing the parts. He's not pretending to be a Christian. Because that's a hypocrite. Pretending to be someone on the outside that you're not on the inside. And the person characterized by wisdom from heaven will be stable, trustworthy, and transparent. And he will be genuine, real, and sincere. Now again, when when I read about hypocrisy, I think back to Jesus, right? I think back to how much Jesus hated the sin of religious hypocrisy. He loved to expose the rank hypocrisy of the Jewish elite. Again, here's the Jesus that we can't ignore. Matthew Matthew 6, verse 2. The Lord Jesus said, So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrite, do in the synagogues and the streets so that they may be honored by men. And when you pray, verse 5, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. And in Matthew 15, we see probably the clearest biblical definition of religious hypocrisy. Jesus quotes the Old Testament and he says, You hypocrites! Rightly did Isaiah prophesy to you, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. And then we could go to Matthew 23. And read all of the seven convicting indictments Jesus pronounced on the scribes and Pharisees, calling them hypocrites repeatedly. So a sure way to tell that if you're a hypocrite or not is to examine your inner motive. Because we see here with these, these, these uh, hypocrites that Jesus went after, they had some exterior facade, but inwardly, it was different, right? So what's your true inner motive? What was your inner motive for coming here this morning? What was your inner motive for coming here this morning? If it had anything to do at all with self.
to be seen by men. These words apply. And if our Christianity boils down to something we do on a Sunday, or if we serve in any capacity for any personal gain or public accolade, that's the kind of hypocrite Jesus condemns. And even more shockingly, in Matthew 24, verse 51, you're not going to find this on many bumper stickers or Christian t-shirts. But again, the Lord Jesus Christ. He said very clearly in Matthew 24, 51, speaking of the hypocrite, it will be cut to pieces and assigned to a place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. How come more people, how come everybody knows John 3.16 but not that verse? So I appeal to the words of Jesus Christ himself to help you gain a biblical view of who Jesus is and to show you how serious the sin of hypocrisy is. You know, we don't believe in venial and mortal sins. We don't believe in purgatory. That's a man-made invention. But the Bible does reveal there are greater levels and more intense forms of punishment for certain sins. And Jesus, by his theme and repetitiveness of going after hypocrites, we must be so sensitive to it. Be so sensitive to that hypocrisy. Putting on a mask, pretending to be a Christian, pretending to love Christ, but in private or in a different context or in your heart, you're someone else. And finally, I have to say, not only are they condemned without repentance, but they're not wise. The hypocrite is fake. He's a phony. He lacks true wisdom. Finally, James closes this section, revealing the result of godly wisdom. In verse 18, it says, And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. To put it simply, this is just the basic idea that godly wisdom produces a continual cycle of righteousness, which is planted and harvested in a peaceful, harmonious relationship with God and between people. So I'm running out of time, but I, I, I want to share with you, by way of conclusion, what I believe to be a superb example of godly wisdom. And again, young women, this applies to you especially. To moms and dads who are raising daughters or granddaughters. Listen to this. This was written by a 20-something-year-old newlywed. She wrote, Little girls are known for daydreaming about their future wedding and husband. Is that true? Even years before they reached Marian age. As a little girl, I remember thinking about the qualities of my quote-unquote perfect prince. My prince, I hoped would be strong, handsome, and romantic. A valiant man who would sweep me off my feet. That's natural wisdom. Then as I got older, my thoughts about my future husband began to take shape in different, less, quote-unquote, fanciful way. I hoped I would marry a man with strong convictions, an intelligent mind, and an optimistic outlook on life. While these qualities were fine, I still had yet to grasp the most important quality for a husband to possess. Now we go from demonic, worldly, and natural wisdom to godly wisdom. I pray 
my daughter will get this someday. She goes on to say, after I committed my life to Christ, I began to desire marrying a man who feared God. The fear of the Lord is beginning to wisdom. And this quality I would find to outshine the rest as it holds eternal significance. This quality would be the foundation of many other significant qualities, such as his love for God and others, his wisdom in life, and faithfulness to the truth of God's word. I now hoped I would marry a man who desired to serve Christ with his life. Oh, isn't that wisdom? Isn't that wise? Isn't that wisdom? So, ladies, as a side note, don't even give a man the time of the day if he does not fear God. If he does not stand on the truth of the word. Because without those two things, there's no wisdom. Father, thank you so much for this time. Thank you that we can find wisdom, true wisdom in your word. Help us to be wise not in the world's eyes. Help us to repudiate and hate demonic, worldly, and natural wisdom. I pray that we be pure and peaceable, full of mercy unwavering, without hypocrisy, full of good fruits. For those of us who have not been wise, forgive us, please, Lord. Cause us to repent, to turn and trust you, and seek after your wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen.